0: Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, by which you also received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... We think of all those saints in the New Testament that labored to catch a glimpse of Christ, from Simeon who rejoiced that before his death his eyes got to see the baby Jesus brought to the temple, to Zacchaeus who climbed the sycamore tree just to see the Messiah. Father, would you bless us with hearts like these faithful men of old, that we set in our hearts a determination to see your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we, as we come to your word, we would find the fulfillment of this desire, that our hearts would be filled with your Holy Spirit, with living faith, and that we would see your son and know him to be our risen savior. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, and amen. amen. I'm going to um, skip from 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll return to in a little bit. I want to hop over for just a moment to Acts 22. Paul is, um, it's, it's near the end of Paul's ministry, and he is. Um, gotten caught in the temple um, causing trouble and he's he is about to be he's been um, arrested and he stops and and he's he's um, making uh, his case and it's Acts 22 verse 30 the next day because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews uh, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, "'Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day.' And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, "'God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law?' And those who stood by said, "'Do you revile God's high priest?' Then Paul said, "'I I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, "'You shall not speak evil.' Uh, of a ruler, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, "Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged." So he's he's a, appearing before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's he's in trouble for um, having been uh, preaching the gospel, and he he sees that 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 he's looking at a crowd that is combined of both Pharisees and Sadducees and so he takes this moment to go to the doctrine of the resurrection seeming like he, he knows that this is going to be a point of theology that will divide them. Um, Now, we should just dive into that for just a moment. Um, This is a point of theology that divided the Pharisees from the Sadducees. Uh, The the Sadducees rejected a belief in miracles. They rejected a belief in angels, and they rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. Those are all the the three things that they denied existed, and the Pharisees affirmed all of those. And because of that, a lot of times the, the Sadducees are cast as like, the theological liberals of the day. So it's like the Sadducees were the liberals and the Pharisees were the conservatives. Um, You can look at it like that, but I think you can actually, I don't know if that's totally accurate. That's kind of mapping our own current theological world onto the world of the first century. And I don't think it quite works like that. The reason there was this divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was that the Sadducees received only the first five books of the Bible, the the Torah. Um, So so just the Pentateuch or the Torah, that was all they accepted as inspired. And they rejected everything after that, the Psalms, the prophets, everything else they rejected, including also the Pharisees um, received the whole Old Testament, but the Pharisees also had a very elaborate and developed oral tradition that they uh, believed was handed down since the time of Ezra. So the Pharisees have this very elaborate tradition and this um, large Old Testament, and the Sadducees had just this very skinny, narrow uh, Bible, and they rejected a whole bunch of the Pharisees' teachings because they believed that they came from these um, later books. So, so in that sense, it's like the Sadducees were actually the far more strict. You might think of them as kind of like our, um, the, the, the people who believe uh, in worship excuse me, that you can only do what has been explicitly commanded in scripture. Um, so they were actually a lot more strict in one sense than, uh, than the Pharisees. And, and what's interesting is that the temple was dominated by the Sadducees. So the priests who ran the temple were mostly Sadducees and the high priests were usually Sadducees. So they kind of ran the temple. But the Pharisees dominated the synagogues, which are the the, um, the the places where you would worship and you would learn spread out throughout all of Israel. Wherever Jews were, there were synagogues. And the Pharisees dominated those, which means that they had a tendency to command the um, opinion of the people because the people tended to be in the synagogues most of the time and then only come to Jerusalem occasionally. So the Pharisees had a disproportionate power over the people where the Sadducees held the temple which made for this like, really interesting conflict because the Sadducees rejected a whole bunch of what the Pharisees taught but because the Pharisees were so compelling, the Sadducees regularly had to kind of conform to the expectations of the Pharisees. So there's this real tension uh, within the temple. Um, now, it's, it's, we don't know a lot about the Sadducees because, because they were restricted to the temple or that, that's mostly where they were when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., the doctrine and the teaching of the Sadducees was completely eliminated, so we only know very little about the Sadducees. But the Pharisees, who had the synagogues and the people, their teaching was kind of preserved, and what we it becomes the foundation for like rabbinic Judaism, what what's now known as Judaism, kind of comes from the Pharisees. So it's this interesting tension uh, between the two, and a lot of it comes down to what's going on in the temple. Um, if you remember, uh, remember how we talked about um, during, when I was explaining the festival of booths, Sukkot, and I said that there was this tradition that um, the, there was this drawing of the water ceremony that got connected to the Feast of Booths, and on one day they, they would draw water and bring it into the temple, and then the high priest during his morning sacrifice, he would pour the wine on the corner of the altar, but during the Feast of Booths, He would also take this water and he would pour it on the corner of the altar in order to get God's blessing for rain for the upcoming year. Well, so this was a regular festival and it was a festival that was taught by the Pharisees and it was expected by all the people because the Pharisees taught it. But if you're a Sadducee, you would reject that because that's not in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so there's one um, there's one famous moment. it's in there like first century BC, where the high priest, Alexander Janius, he's a Sadducee, um, and he's the high priest, and he's up there and he's got the pitcher of water, and he's standing. At the altar, the whole crowd is there, all gathered to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So they all have their palm branches, and they have to bring a lemon and a a bunch of branches to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So the whole temple courtyard is full. of These people waiting for him to pour the water on the corner of the altar. And he's sitting there, and he decides he's a Sadducee. He rejects this this ceremony. And so in sort of rebellion against the the Pharisees, he pours it onto his own feet. Um, And the crowd freaks out angry, and they're so mad that they all, they've got their lulavim, the, the branches with the lemons, they all start hucking their lemons at the high priest, and they literally almost lemoned him to death, um, stoning him, you know, with, with lemons. He gets out of there alive, but, but just barely. Um, all that to say, you see how, like, they take this whole thing pretty seriously. There's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're at odds with one another, and so then When Paul is standing here, he realizes he's been arrested, um, and he's in trouble, and they bring him before this uh, crowd. It kind of makes sense. You see why all of a sudden he says this um, in verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he's figured out this point of tension, and he knows how he can divide this crowd. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisee party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force among them and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. Okay, so you see Paul taking advantage of this disagreement. He says, I'm here because of the resurrection. The Pharisees say, well, you know, then actually we side with him because maybe an angel told him this. Another thing that the Sadducees would reject. So it makes sense. However, I want to push on that just a little bit because that's generally how we explain what happened here in Acts. We say that, well, Paul saw this tension and it was sort of a rhetorical trick where he's taking advantage of two political a faction between these two political parties. And that's what he's, he's doing. But I want to argue that the doctrine of the resurrection was more than just a conveniently divisive point for Paul at this moment. It was at least that. I think he was definitely taking advantage of that. But I want to argue that Paul actually has a, um, a, more, a more honest and sincere point here when he says that he's actually being uh, arrested and he's in trouble because of his belief in the resurrection. Um, think of it this way. When, when, we, um, when we share the gospel, when we explain to people how the gospel works, I think we tend to um, maximize the death of Jesus in the way we explain the gospel um, to the extent that we actually kind of make the resurrection of Jesus um, negligible. Like, I don't know that we, we explain the gospel in a way that makes sense of the resurrection, um think Think of it like um, this we know that we 're saved from um, we 're saved from our our sin because Jesus died for it on the cross okay that 's how you get forgiveness because Jesus died for your sin, and we tend to tell it like Um, I'm here and Jesus is standing over there and I've got sin on me and he has righteousness on him. And when I have faith in him, then my sin is taken off of me and put onto him and his righteousness is taken off of him and put onto me. So now my sin is gone and I am righteous because of this exchange that has happened to us and that happened by faith. Okay, So when that happens, then it makes sense. Okay, my sin has been taken, it's put on him and he dies for it. Now my sin has been taken care of. But why... Do we need a resurrection for that to work, right? Why, why does there need to be a resurrection? But Paul tells us, if we go back to our First Corinthians fifteen that I opened with, listen to this again. He he's telling us the gospel, and he says, "I delivered to you first of all that that which I received uh, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that He was buried." And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes and he lists this long list of all the people that witnessed the risen Christ. For the, for the way Paul is describing it, this, Jesus' resurrection is as important as his death. And it's important that he lists all of these people that witnessed the resurrected Christ. Including, finally, Paul himself who gets to see the risen Christ. Um, Paul himself was not a witness of the crucified Jesus think about it that way Um, Paul himself was not a witness of the crucified Jesus he was a witness of the resurrected Jesus he wants to get all the way through to the resurrection and that's the thing that he's bearing the testimony of and according to Paul his confidence in the message of the gospel was directly connected to his confidence in the resurrection if you go down to verse 14 if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty. Okay? If Christ is not risen, then this whole thing is pointless. So, so the resurrection is not just a, um, a happy ending for Jesus. It's essential for us. And I say that because if, if it's if I'm standing here, and Jesus is here, and my sin is put on him, and then he dies on the cross, and now I'm sin-free... Okay, why do I need a resurrection? Though it seems like when we tell it like that, the only reason I need a resurrection is so that Jesus can come to heaven also and be with me in heaven. It's more like it's for him than it is for me if we explain the gospel that way. But but we're told that the resurrection was necessary for the gospel. And I think in order to understand that, we have to see how, and you can kind of go into Paul's teaching um, throughout all of his epistles and you start to really see this. But for Paul, the Christian's personal identity was all wrapped up in the risen Christ because it's not that I'm standing here and Jesus is standing there, it's that I'm inside of Jesus. I'm placed in him and the two of us are united together. He's not distant from me with us making a little sin exchange. Um, that sin exchange happens because I've been united with him. I am in him. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his rec- resurrection. Or verse 8. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So, so the sin exchange happens because I have been united with him. When Jesus went into the ground, I went into the ground with him. I died with him. By faith, I'm united, and I went down with him. And the reason why he needs to rise from the dead is because if he didn't, then I'm still in the ground also. His resurrection is my resurrection, and I need that because of that union. You're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. His rising from the tomb is the declaration of your victory over sin and death. It's the declaration of your forgiveness. That's what you receive there. And so if you think about it that way for a moment, then every accusation of guilt, like every time that sort of bony finger gets pointed at you, that every accusation of guilt getting pointed at you, Um, every accusation that is leveled against one of God's saints must deal with the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Okay, Every time an accusation is leveled at one of God's people who has been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that accusation has to deal with Jesus' resurrection. Um, Therefore, it is not surprising then that when the subject of his conscience comes up, Paul will constantly want to start talking about the resurrection of Jesus and vice versa. Every time he talks about the resurrection, he's going to start talking about his conscience. And whenever his conscience comes up, he's going to start talking about the resurrection. And that's not just in Acts 22, where he has that little encounter with the Pharisees and and the Sadducees. It's actually throughout Paul's teaching. It's really strange how if his conscience comes up, look, and within a few verses on either side somewhere, you're going to see him talking about the resurrection. Um, Back go to that Acts 22 passage again. So he's arrested there at the end of 22. And then in 23, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And then it's, that's in verse 1. And then it's in verse 6 that he says, it's the resurrection that you have a problem with here. He first says, I have a clean conscience, and then second, he says, and your problem is actually with the doctrine of the resurrection. If you want to say I'm guilty, deal with the risen Jesus. Uh, Look at Acts 24, verses 15 and 16. Again, he's, once again, on trial, having to bear testimony between political officials. And he says this, verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Okay, So I'm in trouble because of the resurrection, and because of that resurrection, I have a clean conscience. I'm, I'm good before God, and that's what you're having a problem with. It's interesting if you think about it, because think about Paul for a moment. This is the guy who described himself as the chief of sinners. And so, so this is somebody who had a sense of his own guilt that I think was probably disproportionate to what many of us feel. He had a deep sense of his own unworthiness and his own sinfulness. He is the one who described himself, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul was not somebody who was trying to pretend that he was not guilty of committing heinous sins. He had an awareness of his sins uh, disproportionate uh, to a lot of others. In fact, if you if you look at like um, theological literature about the Apostle Paul, one of the things he's often credited for is having this um, really um, overactive consciousness of guilt and sin. He is the one who describes himself as the chief of sinners. He understood his own depravity, and he's the one who wrote in Romans 7, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He knew how um, dominated he was by his own sin. Look back even at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 and 9. Then last of all, he, Jesus, was seen by me, Paul, also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He can sit and list the sins that he committed. He knows the things that he did. He knows he can recall standing there with the coats watching while they stoned Stephen. He can recall going and getting special permission to arrest Christians to, to deliver them over to, the, to be uh, executed. He, is, um, he knows of his own sin. He understood himself to be guilty of great sin. But what is weird is that whenever the subject of his conscience comes up, Paul speaks as having a clean conscience. Acts 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I have a clean conscience. Acts 24.16. This being so, I, always, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. So why does he have a clean conscience? Why can he be somebody who knows how sinful he is and can sit and say, I have a clean conscience? My, My conscience is not bothering me. I have a clean conscience. Well, it's because of the resurrection because he believes in resurrection. He, in fact, actually saw the risen Christ, and he experienced the power and the glory of a resurrected Savior. He knows that he has witnessed himself, the risen Jesus, and he knows that by faith he has been united to that risen Christ and has a share in that glory that he personally beheld, that he saw and he knows is his. So then, when a high priest tries to condemn him, when a Roman governor tries to stand in judgment over him, when any accusation is brought against him, he is going to go back to the simple fact of Easter morning. All right? That's where he keeps going. Whenever he gets accused of something, he's going to go back to the resurrection. He has seen the resurrected Christ, and so his conscience is clean. It isn't bothering him. And he's not getting a clean conscience by forgetting his sin, by forgetting his guilt, by pretending it didn't happen. He can sit and unload all of it for you. And he does throughout the New Testament. He, he continues to know uh, and be perfectly aware of his own guilt. And yet he can sit and brag about having a clean conscience. So his bringing up the resurrection before the Sanhedrin was more than just a bit of clever rhetoric. Okay, I think it was at least that. I think he knew what he was doing. But, but it was more than just that. It was his primary defense. Whenever someone tries to convict, convict his conscience, he goes to the resurrection. And I want to argue that what is true for Paul is also true for you. If you have received Christ by faith, then you have a right to Paul's conscience. Okay? If you have received Christ by faith, then you have a right to Paul's conscience. And you need to learn Paul's move. Okay? You need to learn Paul's instinct to constantly go back to Easter. All right. To constantly go back to the resurrection of Christ and to address your conscience with that. Peter tells us that the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Right, we have an enemy that's, that's going around looking for whom he may devour. But how does, how does he devour? Um, contrary to our popular culture, it is not by getting you to buy naughty satanic sneakers, right? That's not the power of Satan, you know, to get you to buy some, uh, some goofy marketed sneaker. The name Satan literally means the accuser. Satan is the Hebrew verb for to accuse. Satan is the accuser. And whenever Satan shows up, he is accusing someone. All right? He is that bony finger of accusation. That is what he shows up doing. In the garden, Satan accuses God of keeping blessings from Adam and Eve by prohibiting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? He's just telling you you can't have that because he doesn't like you because he doesn't want you to have a good time. All right? it's, he's sitting there accusing God to Adam and Eve. In Job, he shows up before God, accusing Job to God, saying that Job only serves God for his own health and wealth. In Revelation, John describes Satan, and this is Revelation 12.10, he says that Satan is the accuser of our brethren who accuse them before our God day and night. All right? Satanism is not the... Um, it, it, it is, it, the power of Satanism is not the Ouija board uh, and creepy movies. It is, the power of it is our own unquenchable guilt, right? The guilt that rise, rides you is the power of satanic accusation in your life. And his argument is very simple, okay? And it actually makes a whole lot of sense. If your past is sin okay if your past if your story is a story of sin all right heinous sin embarrassing sin shameful sin if that is your past then your future must be more sin leading to despair okay that's the that's the satanic argument is that if your past is this then your future must be more of it And because your future is just more of it, you need to just despair and you need to give up hope. You need to be hopeless about the trajectory of your life. Okay, The power of his argument then lies in how obviously true it feels. Okay, When you're in that moment where that thought is in your mind, it seems like it is saying nothing other than what is plainly obvious. That this is your story, don't lie about it, don't try to cover it up. All right, this is the story. If you look at it honestly, then you know you have shameful sin bringing you to where you are now. And if that's who you are, then you just need to know that that's what you're going to be in the future. And you need to give up hope and you need to stop being two faced and trying to convince people that you're other than what you really are. Because this is what you are. You're this sinful person and that's all you're ever going to be. Um, if you're a sinner, then you must keep on being a sinner. Right? It, it, the power of the argument is just in the logical consistency of it. Right, um, <clears throat> What is already dead must stay in the ground and rot. Okay? Whatever, whatever is already dead should just stay in the ground and rot. That is until Jesus comes along, forgives all your sin, and promises to raise you from the dead. Right? That's the miracle of Jesus coming into that story. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has given you the greatest possible defense against these accusations. He has given us an Easter conscience, the ability to actually rise from the dead in the midst of uh, that kind of accusation. As one of God's saints, then, you're called to use the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a powerful weapon in your own sanctification. This is something that you will have these kinds of thoughts all the time and you want to learn to use Easter the way Paul did when these thoughts landed on him and when these accusations came at him. I say this because even as a Christian, how often have you given into a sin simply because it felt like you might as well commit this sin given your own past? Right? Think about that for a moment, how often that's a play that is run on you where you feel like I've already committed this sin, so I can't say no to the next sin because it would be inconsistent. Right? I, I have to like stay consistent with what I have been, and I have to keep doing this. Um, and, and it's really weird how you will feel compelled by like a twisted, um, a twisted consistency, like a, a twisted obligation to consistency where because I've done this already, I have to keep doing this. I, you can actually call, you, you'll catch yourself saying, I have to keep sinning like this because to not keep sinning like this would be hypocrisy right? Because it would be a break with what I am, and I, and I can't pretend like I'm anything other than what I am. If I have committed this one sin, then I have no right to say no to the next one. Why? Well, because it would be inconsistent. Um, I don't have a right to obedience and freedom from this sin because of what I have already done. You have this story, and you feel like you are bound to it, and you can't get free of it. It's, it's weird, like, you can track this out in different um, manifestations, but this is um, the logic that, like, a sexual predator will, will use in order to pull somebody um, in to, to deep vice with them because they basically can say, look, you're already guilty of this sin, so you kind of have to keep doing this. You have to keep becoming more and more of this kind of person because you're already compromised here, so that compromise has to keep going. Okay? And people can take advantage of that guilt in your life in order to compel you to other deeper and more uh, heinous sins. You're all already guilty of certain sins. You actually have to commit these other sins. These are the private, almost subconscious thoughts that will get you. You, fo- you form some sort of identity because of something you did years ago or something that was done to you. And then this becomes this determination for the rest of your life that you must always be enslaved with this sin. You feel like because this happened to me, this is the kind of person I have to be and I have to keep staying in this path of sin. You identify yourself with certain sins and then that identity robs you of the ability to resist other future sins. I don't say any of this to excuse us of any of our sins or to make us feel sorry for ourselves when we are trapped in this cycle. When you fall victim to that logic and you continue in sin, you continue in real sin, sin that you are really guilty of, sin that you actually have to answer for. So it's not like this excuses us in any way, but it's helpful to sit and see what's actually happening because then you can see how God delivers us from this. So I simply want to identify what's going on. What is the satanic move that we are so easily defeated by? And If we see this and understand it rightly, this is where an Easter conscience comes in. Jesus rose from the dead, right? What was dead became live, and here is the great miracle that you, by faith, were placed inside of him. And his resurrection from the dead is yours. And this consistency is not something that you are obligated to. The resurrection Triumphs over and trumps that twisted consistency so you by faith have risen with Christ and are not obligated to any of this and and, and notice here this is not some self-help mantra okay of you saying all right i I choose to no longer identify with this. I choose to identify in a different way and I'm going to proclaim my own independence of it and victory over it because I'm going to think of myself in a different way. That's kind of a self-help sort of mantra where you, you choose to just think of yourself in a different way so that you don't have to be that person anymore. There's no real freedom in that because that's just a trick that's going on in your mind, okay? Paul knew that he was the chief of sinners. He never stopped in his understanding of who he was or what he had done. He continued knowing the facts of his life. His biography was not erased. He knew who he was. He knew that he was the chief of sinners. Um, so if you, if you try to have some sort of self-help mantra where you identify differently, and you find yourself with a, a whole load of imagined garbage that gets you nowhere. Okay? Because the truth is, you aren't better than this. You aren't. You are the one that committed that sin. You can't somehow just say, that's no longer me. I'm a different person. You can't just declare yourself to be separated from it. Because that is still you. All right? You are still there. <coughs> Instead of a self-help mantra, I'm talking about a historical event. Something that actually happened in history. Something that, when Paul is describing this, he, he has to list all of the witnesses to the event. Um, Peter saw the risen Christ. John saw the written, risen Christ. The disciples saw the risen Christ. A whole crowd of people saw him. And then I myself saw the risen Christ. He's talking about a historical event that happened, not a new way of thinking about things in your mind. Jesus rose It happened, and that's why we celebrate it every year at Easter, we're we're celebrating a moment in time that actually occurred and changed the world. Uh, Like the 4th of July. When we celebrate the 4th of July, we're celebrating something that actually happened, and we have a nation that exists because of a historical moment. Uh, It's like your birthday or your anniversary. These are things that happened that changed your life and made you into a different kind of person. We're celebrating an actual event in history where death was defeated, your sins were atoned for, and your conscience was made white as snow. Right? That's what happened on Easter morning. If somebody accuses you of lying about your age, you show them the date on your driver's license. Right? You say, here it is. I can, I can show you. There was a moment in time. Here's the date. I can tell you how old I am. I know how far it is uh, from this date. Okay? Because that was something that happened, and you have documentation to show for it. When we celebrate Easter, that is what we're doing. We are celebrating the moment when Jesus rose from the dead, when the accusations against you all fell to the ground. And so you need to learn then to act like Paul, where when accusations pop into your conscience, when your conscience is troubled, then you do what Paul did. You take it to Easter. Right, you take it to the resurrection. If someone accuses you of lying about your conscience, you start talking about Easter. And when you do that, you aren't changing the subject. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we serve not just a Messiah who has died for us, but a Messiah who has been raised again. We thank you for our share in this victorious resurrection and ask that you would fill our hearts and minds with a sure confidence in this inheritance that you have set aside for us. And Father, I pray that we would take these clean consciences and not waste them by using them as an excuse to sin, but rather that we would use this Easter gift from you as a way to get victory over sin, to walk away from it, and to live lives of obedience and faithfulness as a sacrifice to you. We thank you for the resurrection and ask you to fix this hope in our hearts and to order our lives according to this great promise. And so we pray as your
1: son taught us to pray, saying, The tale is true. This world is strewn with hints. All the clues are there. We are tipped off each time we plant seeds in the spring and harvest the fruit in the fall, or every time the sun sets only to rise again the next morning, or when the dark chill of winter gives way to the bright green of April. When God spoke the words of creation, it was foretold, for pulsing with life, something came from dead nothingness. When God put Adam to sleep and made Eve, he was inviting us into the inside scoop that life would come from death. Noah emerging from the ark, Abraham receiving back Isaac on Mount Moriah, Joseph being raised from Pharaoh's prison to Pharaoh's right hand. Moses leading Israel through the Red Sea. Joshua conquering five kings, hanging them on a tree, and then burying them in a cave. Samson delivering Israel by bringing the temple of Dagon down upon himself. David's psalm that he tells of many a time where he was near death, and then by God's deliverance raised to triumph. The prophets all foretold it. Some, like Jeremiah, were cast into pits to be a sign of it. But for those who have been given eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, that is, there it is in creation and in scripture, plain as day, life out of death is the story God has been telling us from the very get-go. Now we, those who believe all this in faith, taste life that came from death, death that will soon be written out of the story, death whose days are numbered, death who doesn't get the last line of the story. Earthly bread can't sustain you forever. Medical science can't keep you alive indefinitely. But here in this bread and wine, which is Christ's body and blood, you are offered life out of death. Eternal life is here, bursting through the seams that you might truly live. So see, hear, and believe the story that God is telling all around us, and come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Definitely stick around for some fellowship afterwards. Grab a cinnamon roll or a mimosa or what, what fancies you in the fellowship hall afterwards. And then the charge is this. Easter is the beginning of the end of death. It is good news. It is gospel. It is good news very simply. And that good news is that one day you'll die. And there's two ways of dying. You can either die in your sins and therefore under the eternal wrath of God, or you can die in Christ. And if you die in Christ, you will be raised with him. If you die in Christ, you will not remain dead. You will live forevermore in joy, unsurpassable. So Easter, our Easter celebrations are like licking the bowl after the cake batter has been made. But we're waiting for the cake to finish baking. We're waiting for the full consummation. We're waiting for what is yet to come. It is delicious, but what awaits is far and away better. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.